This week, Ohio State University professor Margaret Newell gives a lecture about state sovereignty and the progressive nature of various constitutions during the early republic of the United States. She examines three examples of state constitutions and discusses how they open the government up to the general public. The work is laid out in these constitutions. What, what, what will be demanded of the citizens is, is going to be a much greater level. You have to be politically aware. You have to participate in all sorts of you know, direct and indirect ways. You have to pay taxes. You know, you're going to have to probably serve in the, you're going to have to serve in the militia. You're going to have to serve in the Continental Army. You know, so you're going to have to offer up military service. You're going to have to offer up taxes to support the war and all the efforts involved. And you know, a level of engagement is just going to be required to you, active citizenry. More in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to History 3011, the American Revolution. Um, hope all of you had a great spring break last weekend and look forward to hearing a little bit more about uh, what you did in, um, in our upcoming discussions. Um, now, we spent the last two weeks talking about the War of Independence, the actual war. And uh, the amazing thing about the revolution is that it, while war was raging, uh, Americans wrote constitutions and debated how to construct a government that would protect the people's rights and, and facilitate their happiness. I mean, this word happiness does not just appear in the Declaration of Independence. It appears over and over and over again in the discussions around the formation of state constitutions and in the earliest bills of rights. So, uh, you know, I think we need to think about how emotion and sentiment are part of uh, the goals of the revolution, uh, of really creating a government that's going to contribute to individual fulfillment as well as the common good, and that both of those goals were intertwined. The fulfillment and happiness of the individual, that we could all be our best selves, but also the good of the whole, are the twin goals of this period of uh, creation of the republic. Now, what we're not going to talk about today is the Confederation, because that was a sideshow. That was the national government was not of interest to these contemporaries. They put a very little you know, philosophy, uh, political science, and consideration into its construction. In many ways, they just took the existing Congress they had and, and you know, gave it some, some rights and powers. But the, all the kind of philosophical ideas, all the hopes and dreams, uh, all of the uh, plans for the future, uh, all the experiments were conducted at the state level. So today I'm going to talk about three state constitutions that were very influential in the period. They either created templates that other states borrowed, uh, templates that influenced our own U.S. Constitution of 1787-1788, or they engaged in radical democratic experiments that um, some other states followed and some other states thought were a bridge too far, that went too far. Uh, Or they represented... um, a, what we might call our counter-revolutionary movement, a pushback against what some Americans viewed as excessive democracy in the period around 1776, and a desire to figure out how to maintain the order of the British Constitution that they had rejected without creating aristocracy, monarchy, etc. So trying to figure out how to create an orderly society was important to some Americans, while pursuit of, of the greatest degree of democracy was important to others. Democracy was not a shared value in 1776. Many feared it. And particularly in the run-up to 1776, in the Declaration of Independence, remember, many people were not ready to separate from England. This includes people within the Continental Congress and, and within these state conventions, these sort of uh, these assemblies that had emerged in the, in the collapse of British governments. Um, you know, many people at, who were state of, colonial officials at the state level we're not ready to declare independence. So, so in some ways, we, we talked about the ways in which militia service or military service, the arrival of war, forced people to choose, to choose sides. Were they going to kind of come out as loyalists? Were they going to come out as supporters of the patriot cause? That these were, these were kind of moments of crisis for individuals in 1775, 1776, and even thereafter. This call for the creation of state governments was 
was a, galvan was a way to galvanize. So it was pushed by the more radical groups within the Continental Congress and within within the colonies, within these state conventions. The so state conventions, uh, these local, these irregular bodies, right, the former legislatures that were now these ballooned bodies that included committees and um, extra people, um, had been sort of pushing for, for creating more formal frames of government, of, of really moving the revolution forward politically. You know, but at the top, there had been sort of resistance. And in some colonies, there was resistance because people weren't ready to declare independence. Pennsylvania, the place where the Continental Congress was meeting, its legislature was dragging its feet. It was one of the holdouts in terms of approving independence. So in the period between when common sense was written, you know, and America and England are at war in this period. I mean, the war has started, right? So um, in the period between when common sense was written and the Declaration of Independence, so, so there's just a lot of, sort of maneuvering around these issues. Now, within individual colonies, now states, moving into statehood, uh, you know, some groups were like, we just have to do something in the short term. Let's just use our charter. So in Connecticut, which had a royal charter dating back to the 17th century, they just used that as a framework of government. Some people in Massachusetts wanted to do the same. Um, but others in Massachusetts really wanted to use this, take this opportunity to do something new. The Virginia Convention, they passed laws, but they didn't know what to do without a royal governor to enact them. As Lord Dunmore had fled the area, he's on ship. Um, you know, they're antagonistic with them. There, there's a sort of a, a concern or, or a question about, well, how, how do we make laws legal? How do we make them binding? You know, how do we make people listen to us? How do we, how do we run these governments from our new position of these conventions? So, we, you know, so we, need, we need to figure out, we need to figure out how, what makes us legitimate, how to make this government function, replace what we had before, make it better. Right? So, so this, is the, this is the energy and this is the push. And John Adams, Sam Adams, Jefferson, other figures who are in this pro-independence uh, faction within Congress, you know, felt that once people created governments, had recreated their governments, not, were not just using some leftover British model, that that would be a true revolution, that there would be no going back. This is literally the words that Jefferson used. There's, there would be no going back once people had created these new governments at the state level. So uh, in, between May 10th and May 15th, Congress worked on this resolution uh, for the states, and it called upon them to adopt such government as shall in the opinion of the representatives of the people best conduce to the happiness and safety of their constituents in particular, in America in general. So, you know, this is a job for the states, but there's still a notion of the collective, of America, that the Declaration of Independence would, in some ways, invent and create, a, you know, a month later. So think about it. This is coming before the Declaration of Independence. So, and in fact, uh, it actually uh, gets in the way of some of the business of Congress, because everybody is so excited about this and what this represents, that people want to go back to their, to their home colonies and work on these constitutions. So Thomas Jefferson is one of those people. And so it was sort of an accident that he was even in Philadelphia to be part of the writing of the Declaration of Independence. He was subbing for his cousin, Peyton Randolph. Uh, and, and Jefferson writes about how he's just like, trying finish, 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 let's get these drafts. I'm going back and then come back, you know, wrap up the drafts of the Declaration of Independence. I want to go back. So Jefferson wrote three drafts, uh, three drafts of the Virginia Constitution that he tried to you know, get people interested in and get people behind and was very active and involved in the, in the Constitution that Virginians did create. So uh, the thing is, it's easy in opposition to be united. So the, the colonists had some notions of what they didn't want, right? They, they, don't want, they didn't want standing armies. They didn't want royal governors who could shut down their colonial legislatures. They didn't want to be beholden to, uh, to the English parliaments and didn't want to accept its sovereignty over all matters pertaining uh, to local government. They thought their local government should have you know, a role in this. What, you know, what, you know, what did they hold up in, in opposition to English rule? Was their, their local legislatures, right? So that's going to be the locus of a lot of the interest and a lot of the excitement. So they know what they don't want. But the, the specifics of what they want, that's where the, the work had to occur. And that process was what really revealed a lot of differences uh, amongst Americans who, you know, were sort of, even those who were united in desiring independence were not necessarily united on what they wanted to see in terms of government. So one thing that people agreed about was that these governments should be republics. 
And in fact, that is what the May 15th resolution actually called for the creation of, of Republican governments with a small r. But this is where our, our, the current Republican Party is taking its name from this concept. So the word republic is actually comes from the Latin, like so many other uh, things to do with government in early America. And it literally, res publica, literally means the public thing. In other words, the public interest. So the main goal of a republic had to be the achievement of the public interest, the achievement of the common good. But there was a role for individual happiness and individual well-being as well in the goals of this republic. So republics were, at the most basic level, representative governments. So Americans agreed at this point that although they were very interested in the Greek city-states and the pure democracy they had engaged in, that, that you know, they would be impossible to achieve or mimic in, even within something as small as a colony. Uh, that, that you know, to have a pure democracy, you really needed something like the towns of New England, where people still met en masse to, to, to discuss and debate and vote on local affairs. But anything bigger than a little town is just simply logistically impossible. So, so this government was going to have to operate by people choosing representatives and having those representatives act in their interests. Right? And what kind of representation do you think they're, they're thinking about? You can, you can answer. <laughs> So what kind of representation don't they want? What kind of representation do they want? They don't want the wealthy and the kind of ruling class. Some people might still want that to happen. So, so that's some actually a great them. point. Some of them want that. Some of them are maybe going to want some changes. They're, gonna, they're looking at themselves. Hey, I've been on this committee. I've now become kind of politically active. I may be the person that I can do this. I want to be, be that representative. Um, I also am thinking of this concept of actual representation, right? That, that represent, res, representatives will, will actually represent the interests of their constituents, will, will live among them. Um, so like, do you want residence requirements? Uh, you know, what, how are you going to enforce these sorts of things? We've got to start thinking about all this. Um, so who, you know, who should serve? Should it be the elites that have generally you know, dominated political office, even in these relatively, in, even in societies where up to 80% of the white men, adult white men, had the vote, like New England, you know, they're still, still picking elite people for office. Is that going to change? And, and should it change? Jan, John Adams feels like that's actually, it's a good system. James Madison and others, you know, think that's a good system. These people in Pennsylvania coming out of that militia committee are thinking something different. They are thinking, like Connie said, what about me? You know, what about, I could do this. And how do we, how do we create opportunities for, for these people who have been serving these committees in militias in the war to enter into political service, to get elected? How do, we, how do we help make that happen for them if they don't have that reputation and that money and that power that gets people into political office? Who should vote? You know, big question. So uh, the other thing that people had in mind when they thought about republics was also like how, how actually demanding they were. They demanded a lot of people. They demanded a lot of citizens. So you had to, you know, within the British system, did you have to work all that hard to be a citizen? You know, uh, within this system, you're going to have to work. Uh, and, and the work is laid out in these constitutions. What, what, what will be demanded of the citizens is, is going to be a much greater level. You're going to have to be politically aware. You're going to have to participate in all sorts of, you know, direct and indirect ways. You're going to have to pay taxes. You know, you're going to have to probably serve in the, you're going to have to serve in the militia. You're going to have to serve in the Continental Army. You know, so you're going to have to offer up military service. You're going to have to offer up taxes to support the war and all the efforts involved. And you know, a level of engagement is just going to be required to you, active citizenry. So the, the, a term that colonists used a lot was virtue. And virtue is, a, is an old word, also a Latin word. And it's a word that actually went through some transformations in the 15th and 16th century. Machiavelli, the prince, in his advice to the ruler of Florence, wrote a lot about virtue. And the colonists were aware of that, uh, of, of those discussions as well. So they, they knew about classical ideas about virtue, and they knew about these, these more early modern ideas about, uh, about, you know, about how a ruler should rule. And uh, we know today we think of virtue as, a, as something that's private, and we often associate it with women, uh, sexual purity. You know, it's, a private, it's, a, it's a private quality. For these people, it was a public quality, and it was actually uh, generally a male quality. So one of the things the revolution is changing is opening up the, the, the achievement of virtue, the quality of virtue, to a, a broader range of people, you know, ac across gender and across ethnicity than it had been uh, employed 
before the revolution. But it still did, uh, you know, have this association of, of you know, of military service, of, of willingness to sacrifice oneself for the good of the country. But there were lots of other ways that Americans could engage in self-sacrifice. So, so citizenship in, this, in these republics uh, is, was going to demand, you know, self-sacrifice of people. They used the term disinterestedness. And by that, they did not mean boredom. They did not mean withdrawal. They just meant altruism, the ability to put the good of the whole above the good of the self. The public service itself required, you know, a, a little bit of that sublimation of, of the self. You know, you had to put your own interests aside and think about other people's interests and work in those interests and maybe lose money in your home farm or maybe, you know, have to support a program that's going to hurt you. But, you know, that was absolutely the, the requirement for engaging in, in good citizenship. So, so very demanding. And many people in the revolutionary generation thought in order to have that degree of, of to, to have to sacrifice, you had to have something to sacrifice. Right? You had to be invested in society in some ways. So generally they assumed that people, there had to be some sort of property requirement for the vote. That you had to have skin in the game. You had to be invested in society in some, in some way. That, that you had property at risk, you had things at risk that you, know, you either wanted to support or you, wanted, you were willing to, to give up, to exercise those qualities of citizenship, of selflessness and, and service. Um, so uh, this was going to be a big discussion. Now, remember uh, Tom Paine and even the Declaration of Independence also talk about equality. And so, so for some of the revolutionary generation, equality is not a forefront goal, but for others it was. So, so another thing that these constitution writers thought about was how to achieve equality. What was, you know, short of taking people's property away, you know, what could you do to achieve it? And, and should uh, government have the power to take people's property away if concentrations of wealth were too great or in the name of the greater good? Is that something that's on the table for these governments to, to suggest? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So another kind of question, another problem, challenge for this constitution writing generation was also the, uh, the question of what would really hold society together. So, you know, the British imperial authority held society together. That, that sort of hierarchical chain held society together and preserved order. What, what, what would hold people together after, if, when that was taken away? You know, what would, what would generate these feelings of of public spiritedness and selflessness and the willingness to sacrifice, you know, what, what would prevent anarchy? You know, some people are really worried about anarchy, and the folks that don't want to create these state governments, it's because they're worried that that, that transition period is just going to, that anarchy is going to break loose. That people are going to, you'll have a state of nature that Thomas Hobbes talked about in the 17th century, that your, you know, your property will be stolen, your person will be, you know, in danger, security will be gone. So, they, you know, some people didn't really have faith that, that they could make this transition. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what would hold society together. And what many of the framers of these constitutions hoped, that the, the, that the governments themselves would generate um, morality. They would generate and train people in good citizenship. That they were, that these, in, in some ways, they're trying to instill ethics by, through government. I know, it's, you know today the idea that politics would be the school of ethics is, a, is, a, you know, is not necessarily where, the way people are thinking. This is, this is what John, John Adams called it, the divine science of politics. That, that maybe through the creation of these wonderful Republican governments that, that you could actually almost sort of achieve moral goals, make people more moral. And, and we'll see as we talk about the specific constitutions that they actually you know, put things in the constitutions to to create the kind of society they want and encourage people to, to engage in more moral behavior. There was also a hope, uh, uh, you know, we talked earlier in the class about the, uh, the influence of English Enlightenment figures like John Locke. But by the 18th century, the Enlightenment had gone through a couple of different phases and changes. In the 18th century, it became much more of a kind of continent-wide event in Europe um, and also other areas within uh, the UK became engaged in writing Enlightenment texts. And these texts of the 18th century were from France, they're from Scotland often, 
Uh, and they were just as exciting to many Americans as uh, Locke had been a, a century earlier. So one of these thinkers was uh, Montesquieu. Um, he was a French nobleman, and he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Laws in 1748. And one of the things that Montesquieu talked about was uh, the importance of, of republics being small. That, that republics, you know, we can't be a perfect great city-state, but, but you try to have a republic that's small and relatively homogeneous. And then, and then, and then it's a lot easier for people to, to get along, and it's a lot easier for people to agree on what the common good is. So this is one of the reasons also why the colonists are thinking the state is, where, is what's going to be the republic. The nation will not really be a republic in quite the same way, or it's not going to be, that's not going to be the, the locus and the focus. Others, other uh, contemporaries are also reading a lot of philosophers coming out of Scotland in this period. And they like these philosophers in part because these Scottish thinkers were, they were on the margins of English society too. You know, Scotland was subject to, to stamp back. They were subjected to all sorts of, you know, they, they got charged for exporting things to England. I mean, they, they were really subjected to a lot of, of disadvantageous relationships vis-a-vis uh, London and Parliament and so on. They, they felt it. They felt like they were a little bit on the outskirts and the outside. So, of course, the, the, the colonists like to read these thinkers. And a lot of them were also thinking about emotion and sentiment in ways that got, where people were kind of interested in in the 18th century. So remember, Tom Paine is an appeal to reason, but it's also an appeal to emotion. Evangelicalism is, like, is popular because it's a, of this emotional appeal as well. So, so there are a number of Scottish philosophers, um, Francis Hutcheson and Adam Smith, who wrote the Bible of Capitalism, The Wealth of Nations in 1776. But he also wrote a book called The Theory on Moral Sentiments. So, you know, he, was, he, he didn't, you know, want the market to run society. He also wanted a moral society, a society, uh, you know, in which morality um, and good feeling operated, not, not you know, not, not endless competition and selfishness, but a pursuit of self-interest that benefited everybody and, and you know, was still th- also thinking about the ways in which morality could be part of these discussions. Uh, so, you know, Americans are thinking a lot about, about what kinds of social and emotional relationships are going to pull them together. They're trying to achieve these things in constitution writing, believe it or not. So uh, anything kind of, uh, so this is George Washington resigning his commission as commander-in-chief at the end of the war. Um, just what are some general reactions to this picture? Does anybody see anything that's interesting? There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of women there's in the painting. There. there are a whole bunch of women there. Um, a lot of them are, are so Washington's um, Martha and the, the girls that are mentioned and never caught are, are present as as their children. They're going to be adults soon, but uh, uh, there's a, there's a gallery up there and there's a bunch of women in it. So one thing that we'll see uh, that our most radical constitution creates are, are is there's an opening of the doors to government, literally an opening of doors. The doors will be open, that people could come and watch. Galleries built in these, what would be these new state houses so the public could attend. And by the public, I meant the public. So that now, you know, women, women are often the, the most common attendees at a lot of these legislative sessions in the galleries, uh, especially during the day. So this idea of, of opening everything up to the public, that's, that's what... Uh, at least some of our constitutions are going to try to achieve. So almost all of these adventures in constitution writing had some common features. Uh, they tried to put some limits on the executive. By, so uh, you know, this fear of the royal governor as a representative of the monarch. So, you know, but you still need someone to execute laws and kind of manage the, you know, some of the business of government that the legislature might not necessarily want to manage. So how do you achieve that position without creating too much continuity with this old system that you didn't like. So one way to do it would be strip some of the powers off that office that the royal governors had had. Um, you know, super-powered legislatures, just because that was the body that they saw as the defenders of their rights in the colonial period. So you know, like all these events of the imperial crisis are really shaping how people are reacting. Um, and they're, they're, so they're, they're thinking of the past when they're writing in the present. They know what they don't want. Uh, and accountability. So our first significant constitution is uh, the June Virginia Constitution. Sorry, this is, hap- again, happening right after the May 15th resolutions, happening during the, the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the vote to, to um, separate from England. So all these things are happening at once. And what the Virginia, Declar- the Virginia Constitution contributed to all subsequent constitutions 
was a declaration of rights. The idea of listing those natural rights that are inherent to all individuals, they are not gifts from government, but are before government, that anti, anti-date government, and they should come first in the Constitution because they are actually not, not gifts of any political organization, but are inherent to us as, as people, as individuals, and to enumerate those things so that whatever government they created, its job was to protect those things. And some other state constitutions just adopted this document wholesale. Uh, some added other things. Some might, might play with the language a little bit, and we'll talk about some of those discussions. And it included many of the rights that made it into the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. So it has references to, most of them included some reference to speech or press. Uh, most of them had some discussion about religion, although not, didn't, not all ended up at the point that the U.S. Constitution did. Uh, they discussed you know, tr- rights to trial by jury, rights against search and seizure, you know, the, the right, different sorts of property rights. Uh, some of them had discussions about bearing arms. Uh, Virginia, in Virginia, you had the right to bear arms on your own property. <laughs> others, others created a, 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 you know, a different take on the right to bear arms. Uh, and then there were rights in this list that um, aren't enumerated in the U.S. Bill of Rights, and we'll talk about what some of them were. But uh, George Mason started his... Uh, Declaration of Rights with a broad statement about natural rights. And you can see this is all the same language that's going into the Declaration of Independence. Right? It's that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights, of which they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity. So no constitution can take these rights away. These rights aren't from the constitution. They can't be taken away or violated by any government whenever formed. And this clause immediately became the, the target of a lot of discussion within the Virginia Convention, right, the old House of Burgesses. And many, uh, you know, these people were slaveholders. Uh, George Mason was a slaveholder. And uh, immediately people were, were concerned about what the effect of that language would be on slavery, on, on their property and enslaved people and so on. So they have, you know, extended debate over this question. And in the end, the Virginia Convention amended George Mason's statement and added language that of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity. So what the Virginians said was, enslaved people are not entering into the society with us. They remain apart in a, in a state of nature and are not part of this process of constituting a government and society in Virginia. So this is, this is a very explicitly discussed in the, in, the, uh, in the debates over this particular clause of, of the Declaration of Rights. So, you know, right from the beginning, uh, the natural rights and, and uh, slavery are, are coming into conflict, and people, are very, are, and people know it, and people are very aware of it. I mean, Mason knew it when he put this out there. So what, you know, we see that there's, that, that for, you know, some Americans are starting to think that, uh, we, we saw already that anti-slavery sentiment had been growing even before the revolution broke out, that you've got petitions from free and enslaved African-Americans in Massachusetts, we've got, you know, uh, people freeing slaves, we've got some evangelicals starting to, you know, talk about the need to get rid of slavery and so on, so there's been some sentiment. Sure. Um, even though, like, George Mason was a slaveholder, was it known whether or not he was in favor of, like, keeping slavery in what would be, like, a national government? Well, what's interesting is that he and Thomas Jefferson talk a lot in this period, particularly about getting rid of slavery. And uh, Jefferson, I'm going to show you a phrase that Jefferson put in his um, draft constitution and up through the U.S. Constitution. Yes, they do talk about it. And they want, they want government to, to stop it. But that they don't stop, you know, but that they don't free their own enslaved uh, property, people. So this is the, this is the paradox. This is the, the incompatible moment. But this also shows what, you know, people trying to adhere to these beliefs, these ideas, and how it's coming up against this whole slaveholding system and what, what individual choices and what collective choices the Americans are going to make in this moment. So, you know, uh, Jefferson's drafts on this Constitution are fascinating 
uh, he called it new modeling government. And this is a phrase right out of the English Revolution. The, the, the Puritan army in the English Revolution was the new model army, right? So he's like, we're starting over. Jefferson, you know, is, is a, a strangely, you know, very interestingly kind of radical person for an elite person. He actually thought that uh, all positive laws should have a 20-year expiration. So every 20 years, all laws should just be null and void so that one generation didn't bind to the next generation. Uh, and this, in his Constitution for Virginia, there wasn't really a governor. There was a kind of executive committee. He, he really stripped away a lot of rights from this position or this, this kind of collective position. Uh, they, they didn't have the right to declare war. They didn't have the right to, you know, name officers to the militias. They didn't have, you know, they, they didn't have the right to shut down the assembly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he thought very hard about also the issue of uh, the dangers that inequality presented to those good social feelings that people wanted in their republic. Um, uh, you know, what, could you have a republic if half the people couldn't qualify for citizenship, couldn't make that property requirement cut? You know, what, what kind of republic would that be? You know, they're in a, they're, they're in a society where 40% of the people are enslaved. So Jefferson actually proposed giving everybody who didn't have the, the minimum required for the vote under the Constitution land. So everybody was going to get 50 acres who didn't already have it, who was a, you know, a male over the age of 21. But where do you suppose that land was going to come from? Would it have been the Indian territory? It would have been from Native Americans. So Jefferson suggested we, we would buy the, the, Virginia should buy the land from Native Americans and that only the state should buy, ever buy land from Native Americans. No individual should enter into any contract. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a hint, at, a pivot at, about protecting indigenous rights. But I mean, you know, the idea that, that one group will be, will be endowed with citizenship by, by the dispossession of another group is, is a complicated feature. Other state constitutions actually debated uh, giving the vote to Native Americans and, and incorporating Native Americans into, into this compact in different sorts of ways. Um, some talked about uh, um, gender very openly. And we'll see that some of the constitutions had gendered language. They talk about free men or, or males over the age of 21, and others don't. They use the term persons. And we used to think this was almost sort of a mistake and that, uh, you know, people, they didn't realize what was the, the implications of these actions. But again, if you, if you, as, it was, as we've sort of dug down and found the diaries or, of these debates over these state constitutions and the discussions and the amendment processes, it's clear that people actually knew what they were doing. And in some cases, in the case of Massachusetts, they actually took a male uh, gender pronoun out and put, you know, a gender, you know, went into in a more, uh, in, in substitute persons. So that, you know, after a discussion about whether they should be excluding women. So, you know, the, the, a lot is on the table. What I'm trying to convey here is how many possibilities there were. This is a, this is a moment of possibility. So Jefferson also worked, uh, along with other constitution writers, to get rid of what many people thought as a source of aristocratic power and wealth, which was the, the leaving property to the eldest son, primogeniture, and um, the entailing of the states, the locking up of money over generations that even the heirs couldn't, couldn't unlock. So just always passed this property state intact and went to the oldest son. And this, this was a big you know, creator of wealth, maintainer of wealth and power. So Virginia and other states passed laws or put it into their constitutions to get rid of that the oldest son could only inherit and to get rid of these entails, make them illegal. And uh, so many of the constitutions actually talked about women's rights of inheritance, that all children should get an equal share, and so put this in their state constitutions. And this was also one of Jefferson's drafts. No person hereafter coming into this country shall be held within the same in slavery under any pretext whatever. What is that saying? Is Jefferson trying to say that he wants to keep his lifestyle, but in the future other people should really not do slavery? It's not freeing, it's not freeing the people who are currently enslaved. Uh, it's not just stopping the slave trade either, but it's saying anybody brought in after the state will be free. But, I mean, think about that, too. That's a, I mean, this is 1776. And between 1776 and 1785, the Virginia legislature debated, uh, debated anti-slavery bills several times, and they passed the House several times. 
So, uh, and, and, you know, but one characteristic of the actual bill, so, so none of these things that Jefferson is suggesting made it into the final Constitution, not this clause about slavery, not his give everybody 50 acres, buy land from the Indians, give everybody 50 acres. Um, the entail and primogeniture they achieved through bills in, the, in later sessions and so on. Um, he also wanted to create public education and have a kind of talented tent where um, children who did well in primary school would get a state-paid secondary education and eventually be sent to William & Mary to create an elite, to, like, to, create, to create mobility, uh, to bring new people into the elite. That also failed. Uh, and this, this is an interior shot of Monticello, by the way, uh, with, with, uh, artifact, uh, with uh, mammoth artifacts um, from George Rogers Clark. So, uh, so, in other words, there was tremendous potential for change in 1776, but you know, even, even, uh, even people like Mason and Jefferson, who are talking about natural rights, you know, into the idea of natural rights, aware of the implication of natural rights for slavery, don't want to don't end slavery in the moment. So in the later bills that Jefferson, Mason, and others proposed, they wanted to remove freed African Americans from Virginia. That, that was going to be a, 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 qual, a requirement for freedom. And generally the laws were gradualists. They, they didn't apply to people currently enslaved. They only re- applied to people born after the law. So not just people brought in, but people born after the law would be free, but they would have to serve an apprenticeship, maybe to age 21, maybe to age 28, and they would have to leave upon freedom. So they talked about creating a, a black homeland in the West, again, you know, out of, out of Indian land. And, and, you know, but this, this idea, the idea of, of, uh, of compact that included uh, the formerly enslaved was not, that was not on the table. It, it had to be, you know, the free people had to go. Um, this is one of the reasons why you get um, all this migration, black migration to Ohio uh, during and after the American Revolution. That's when that, that's the period when this is going because there was a kind of, you had to, you know, they were trying to force free people, even people who had been freed for generations to leave, to leave Virginia. So, so Virginia shows both the incredible potential, but also, you know, the, the limits of some of these ideas and rhetoric. Um, and, and, you know, the beginning of, of a conflicts and discussion over this question of slavery that would become part of um, debates in other states that would lead to laws abolishing slavery in other states that would lead to the Donnybrook of a discussion during the debate over the U.S. Constitution and on and on and on through the Civil War and, and through today. So another important constitution was the Pennsylvania Constitution, also written in uh, May and June of 1776. So a lot of action those months. So I've already mentioned that Pennsylvania had a kind of unique history going into the revolution. Like a lot, of, lot less activity around the Stamp Act and a lot of these earlier protests. A lot more activity in the few years leading up to the revolution itself. You, you know, the emergence of, of radicals like Tom Paine who are pushing for independence you know, in December and January of 1775 and 1776. And, you know, a very robust uh, committee structure, and particularly of these, of these sort of private militias and uh, associators um, that had emerged in, between, um, in the 1740s and 50s, but really took on new life in the couple of years before the American Revolution. Pennsylvania is also, you know, a place with a lot of ethnic and religious diversity. And in some ways, this, this, make, you know, this makes unification difficult, right? That, that they're a challenge for Montesquieu. Um, Many of these immigrants also were not naturalized. Um, they had not achieved naturalization citizenship. Some of the colonies required seven years of, of um, presence, and you had to actually go for it and apply for it. And some of the German-speaking immigrants often didn't bother unless they were kind of coerced by the state to, to do so because they wanted to write a will or file some other sort of uh, paper. So you've got a very diverse community. You've got a sort of radical energy You've also got a rather conservative legislature that did not want to adopt independence. Um, they're dragging their feet, even as they're meeting in the same building as the Continental Congress. You know, so this is, this is driving the radicals in Pennsylvania nuts. So they actually engage in a kind of coup. Uh, in May, they call a convention. They, they basically run an election for delegates to a constitutional convention and hold it and write a constitution and replace the sitting Pennsylvania Assembly with a new assembly. 
So the committees in Pennsylvania literally take over the government of Pennsylvania and write the Constitution. So this Constitution is, is the most distinct. It's the most different from our current frame of government and from both the British style and, and what came after. So they got rid of everything associated with the British system, with aristocracy, with hierarchy. So no governor, because what was a governor except an exemplar of royal power? Um, no Senate, because what was the Senate except an exemplar of, of aristocracy? The House of Lords in England, those people had their seats by inheritance because they're aristocrats. Why would you need an upper house if you're not you know, encoding aristocracy? Uh, so they had a one-house legislature, unicameral legislature. Uh, instead of a governor, they created a, an executive council, uh, that, a kind of president, really, and, uh, and people that the House of Representatives would appoint to advise that person, and that person would sort of execute the will of the legislature. But this legislature super hyperpowers uh, itself, right? So the legislature, you know, appointed judges, appointed uh, people to office, or they had election of some of these figures, of some judicial figures as well. So it's like if they're not elected by the people, the business is being conducted by the legislature. The other interesting thing that this constitution did is that it created a lot of accountability. So the, this is the most people accountable, accountable to the people government created in this period. Uh, elections were to be annual. So every year you'd have a chance to throw the bum out and elect somebody new. The idea behind annual elections also was that um, more people would end up serving. This also informed uh, a desire for term limits. Right? They didn't want an entrenched elite. They didn't want the same people in power. So uh, people could only serve four out of any seven years. They were term limited. So during the colonial period, if you're trying to find out you know, what went on behind the scenes and what kind of debates people had uh, within these colonial legislatures when they were discussing laws or policy, you have to find a diary. You have to find a letter. You have to find some private recording of what went on. Because in the colonial period, legislatures did not publish any of their, or make public, any of their debates or any of their discussions. They didn't publish roll call votes. So you, you knew that you could find out the gross number of yeas and nays, but you didn't know whether your representative voted one way or the other. So you, the public wasn't allowed in. There was no access to the debates. Nobody knew and no access to roll call votes. So Pennsylvania, literally, they say we're throwing open the doors. We're building a gallery. We're throwing open the doors. Anybody can come at any time. On top of that, we're going to publish all of the discussions. On top of that, we're going to publish roll call votes so you know exactly how your representative is voting. On top of that, we're going to publish any law that we passed. And it won't go into effect until it's been circulated in public. And the public has a chance to weigh in and decide whether they like this law or not, or whether we know, need to go back to the drawing table. So, so it's kind of popular consent to, law, to new laws was built into this constitution. So, you know, this was the most democratic constitution created in this period, arguably. And some historians said it made Pennsylvania the most democratic society on the face of the earth. And this and it was certainly in, uh, the, in the Americas or in Western Europe in this period. So that's a pretty, that's, that's, that's an achievement. And it was put together by people like Tom Paine, by Dr. Benjamin Rush, by Charles Wilson Peale, the artisan turned artist. You know, remember Peel and Payne are both fighting the American Revolution. So, you know, Rush has a staff appointment. Timothy Matlack and the committees. You know, they're the ones who are writing, you know, the Committee of Privates is, is writing this, is helping to write this constitution. Um, this constitution also gave people broad voting rights. So in Pennsylvania, there was no property requirement for the vote. All you had to do was own yourself. If you were a free person, you could vote. So this excluded the enslaved. It excluded uh, apprentices. So if you were in an apprenticeship or a contract like that, you were, not, they were not, you were not viewed as totally free. And actually, there were a lot of apprentices in the, in the militia. So apprentices really pushed back about this. But in the end, this, this, they reached this compromise to exclude them. And thereafter, the militia didn't enroll apprentices. They weren't allowed to, to um, be in the militia and serve in these sorts of committees. Uh, the, this meant that people of color voted because there was no 
you know, no, no race or ethnicity was mentioned. Pennsylvania also made naturalization easy. So you only had to reside in the uh, state for one year to become naturalized. So this made the vote and participation available to all of these uh, fairly recent immigrants, like Timothy Matlack, uh, like to you know, these Germans, these people of different ethnicities, these Scots-Irish. They're now you know, voting participating citizens. And Pennsylvania is also kind of interesting because uh, they really put like, a lot of hopes and dreams into the Constitution. Yeah, they said, you know, we want people to work, work hard at their, at their calling. So they find a vocation and work hard at it. You know, we want people to be virtuous. We want you to contribute to the state, and we're going to demand that you contribute to the state. They did criminal justice reform. They, they, they're in the Constitution, there are limits on bail. There, there's you know, getting rid of debt, uh, debtor's prison, getting rid of uh, excessive fines and fees and so on and so forth. So, I mean, they're, they're really, they also got rid of entail and primogeniture and talked about inheritance. And they debated and initially had included um, a, a declaration limiting concentrations of property. So this was one of the 47... So there were 16 rights and then 47 um, other elements to the Constitution. That an enormous proportion of property vested in a few individuals is dangerous to the rights and destructive of the common happiness of mankind. And therefore, every free state hath a right by its laws to discourage the possession of such property. So that, that article did not make it into the final Constitution as adopted. But it sure shows that what Pennsylvanians were, were, trying to, were thinking about was equality and worried about concentrations of wealth and kind of willing and thinking about using the state, if necessary, to do something about those things. So, so you know, property rights sacred, equality sacred. Sometimes they come, they're, sometimes, you know, they're, they're in sync. Is there, was it, would there be a moment where, the, where those things might not be in sync? There was, there were, those moments were going to come. Uh, particularly during wartime in cities like Philadelphia. So this constitution really pulled together a, a broad coalition of support. It sort of broke the existing Pennsylvania politics and created new alliances between rural people uh, who had been somewhat mobilized by the revolution and city people who had before had been kind of opposing, you know, opposing factions, opposing sides within the politics of Pennsylvania, which had kind of been dominated by a... a by the proprietor, by the Penn family, who were Anglicans, the Church of England, and the Quakers. That was one group, and everybody else, all the immigrant groups, all the evangelicals, all the others were in the other group, rural people in the other group. So this kind of created a bridge between the city people and the country people um, of the lowering and middle orders, and this was their constitution. So uh, the last interesting tidbit about the Pennsylvania Constitution was this Council of Censors. And what the Council of Censors was, was a, a kind of judicial review, but it was an elective body. And it basically called for uh, the Council of Censors to be on it and to uh, you know, impeach any official that wasn't doing their job that seemed to be a danger to the republic, to, to keep an eye on the laws and make sure that they were as they should be. But also, uh, every seven years, to decide whether the Constitution needed to be changed in some formal way. And if so, the Council of Censors could call a constitutional convention. So built into this constitution is the possibility of change, the possibility of revision. But this constitution was so, uh, you know, had you know, so many of these elements of this constitution were controversial that you know, pushback from the groups that had been displaced in the former legislature, people who didn't like various sorts of, you know, didn't like the kind of opening up of the uh, assembly, uh, the Constitution actually says that you should try to vote for different people, not the same old people. <laughs> that you know, you, you you need to run for office, and new people need to get up there, right? So, you know, this all of these elements, the lack of you know the empowerment of the legislature, the lack of other sort of checks and you know on the legislature, you know, this created pushback both within the state and in other states. So, although you know, Pennsylvania uh, Pennsylvania's influence. Uh, shaped the Vermont Constitution. Uh, Georgia also had a unicameral assembly, but possibly Pennsylvania's biggest influence was in provoking a reaction in other states of a people who were, were saw this democracy and kind of wanted to slow it down. 
So after this burst of constitution writing, there's a, you know, there's a slow walk goes, that happens in, in other states. And it literally is about, like, things are really radical right now. Let's, let's, let's wait a little while. Uh, this is John Adams in Massachusetts, and, and others are, are, are trying to maybe slow walk things a little bit. And the result of the slow walk in a, in a, in a period of consideration was the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 that was begun in 1778. And John Adams drafted this constitution. Um, he had already written about what government should look like in a pamphlet that was kind of a response to common sense. It came out just a, a few months after common sense in the spring of 1776. Adams was writing to try to reassure people who were worried about independence that Americans could create governments, but they would still, that could still be kind of orderly, that they could be, have orderly republics in this pamphlet of 1776. Uh, but by 1778, Adams was also looking at things that had happened in Pennsylvania and things that were going on in his own home state of Massachusetts. So, you know, what, what this popular legislature did in Pennsylvania and, and basically what the, you know, what the legislature then in Massachusetts was doing before this constitution, they were doing a lot of people-pleasing things. They were making it hard for debtors to collect debts while veterans were away or, or while soldiers were away fighting the war. And, you know, people's estates and mortgages were getting behind. Uh, these, these legislatures were making it, you know, giving people debt protection. They were sometimes controlling the price of food that, as prices skyrocketed in Boston or Philadelphia or other cities. So they were doing things that the people wanted. But, you know, for some, they... Th- you know, people who were the mortgage holders, who were the uh, sellers of goods, you know, they viewed these acts as maybe infringements on their property rights. And we'll talk more about this uh, in a forthcoming lecture. So Adams really came back at the Constitution writing discussion with a, a draft that included a lot of elements of the old order, but kind of dressed up in, in, a, in a new kind of Republican uh, clothing. So he brought back a strong executive. The governor in this constitution had powers that the royal governors hadn't had, uh, particularly veto power, the ability to veto things coming out of the legislature. The governor had, uh, or Adams also created a Senate, uh, and which he hoped would be a Senate of natural aristocrats. And he sort of set things up so that the governor and the Senate would both be drawn from these more elite groups by creating high property bars to serving in political office. So Pennsylvania didn't have any requirement for serving in office. So you had to have an estate of 1,000 pounds to even to be governor. You had to have an estate of uh, 600 pounds to be in the Senate, or excuse me, to be lieutenant governor, and then 300 pounds to be in the Senate. So you had to be a person of property to even qualify for these offices. You also had to be a Trinitarian Protestant. Uh, this constitution, all the constitutions talked about religion. So Virginia, uh, George Mason's initial draft and James Madison's prodding, uh, you know, brought a degree of religious freedom to Virginia, but Virginia retained an established church at that point. Didn't get taken away until 1785. Uh, Pennsylvania offered complete religious freedom. No state church, no taxes would be paid to support a state church. Massachusetts retained a state church. So they offered religious toleration and the ability to practice religion, but gave the state the right to compel people to, to attend particular kinds of public worship or to, uh, certainly through tax, local tax money, support a particular church, the Congregational Church, the Puritan Church. And this remained true in Massachusetts until the 1820s. So the U.S. Constitution says the U.S. will not establish a religion. The federal government won't, but it didn't stop the states from doing it. And in fact, there's some bills right now uh, in some states to reestablish churches with, to reestablish religion within states. You know, these things are, this idea is being floated around to, to return to the, an established religion. Uh, here, Adams actually uh, was open to just saying Christian. He had to be Christian to, to be an office holder. And the, the people in Massachusetts wanted, you know, Protestant, Protestant, Protestant. So, you know, the, the status of Catholics under this, um, under this constitution was a little vague because uh, there's some language that would seem to exclude Catholics. It certainly excluded Jews. Technically, it really even excluded um, 
um, you know, folks who were, were um, Christian who didn't necessarily believe in the divinity of uh, the Trinity and so on. So uh, fewer people could vote under this constitution than in the colonial period. The property bar for voting was 60 pounds, higher than it had been. So uh, the Senate, uh, the number of senators was based on the property and tax rate, uh, sort of tax revenue of particular districts. So the areas around Boston, Salem, commercial cities would be hyper-represented in the Senate. So it wasn't just based on population. It was based on tax rolls, <laughs> the number of senators that a certain area got. So some of these western towns weren't even going to be able to qualify uh, to send representatives to the lower house of the Massachusetts Assembly. You also needed to have at least, a town had to have 125, 150 people to even send a rep. They were still going to do a town-based thing. So, so this constitution really sort of represented the interests of more of the, the wealthier eastern part of Boston. You know, it was, it was, it was creating a lot of order <laughs> and, and, you know, um, making sure that an elite would still have control of some important offices within Massachusetts society under this new constitution. But it, it did do one interesting thing. Um, it, it actually sent the constitution out to, to, for people to consent to. So a special election was held for uh, local conventions to look at this, look, you know, representatives from localities to look at this constitution and amend it and decide what they could live with and what they couldn't live with. So they, you know, they pushed back on some elements of this constitution, got some things changed. But this so principle of ratification, of consent, was an important principle. And also what, what Adam sort of did was he, he, he offered up a way to, to sort of think about checks and balances of how to, how to create a Senate maybe without having an aristocracy. Uh, you know, he, he said, no, we need, we need a powerful executive. He sort of went after those taboos that had been very much influencing the generation of 76 and said, no, we need these things. And, you know, this was also very controversial. It was controversial within Massachusetts. So in Pennsylvania, parties formed around their constitution. An anti, you know, an anti-constitution party calling themselves the Republicans immediately began fighting that constitution, looking forward to the next Council of Censors meeting where they were going to try to go in and rewrite it, and they did. In Massachusetts, we were, we were going to see rural, you know, rural agitation about the, after this constitution and its elected officials come in and start changing, you know, start getting rid of some of these protections for debtors and other sorts of popular policies during the war itself. We'll end up in a pretty major rural insurgency, both in Massachusetts and in other colonies in the 1780s. So, so here's a couple takeaways. Uh, one is that uh, this idea of a Declaration of Rights, a Bill of Rights, is probably one of the most lasting and great contributions of this era of Constitution writing. But also the idea that politics is a, you know, politics is a potentially moral activity. And the structure of government can be used to change things that you want for society. These are, these are, these are sort of lasting uh, contributions, and probably one of the greatest contributions of the American Revolution to su subsequent revolutions. So it influenced the French Revolution, influenced the Haitian Revolution, you know, any, any of these democratic revolutions. The Declaration of Rights became the basis of their own declarations of rights, the, the writing of constitutions. You know, even in the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, former Soviet republics asked uh, you know, uh, Americans to come and help them write constitutions. But they sometimes wanted to put things in their list of rights like the right to housing. Or the right to health care. You know, so I mean, our discussion, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a future discussion. So Adams sort of figured, you know, also really was, was here talking about the separation of powers, of, of, of not letting the legislature run the judiciary, not letting them you know, run all aspects. It's, this stuff had to be separated out. Another lasting idea that we'll see coming up in our discussions of the US constitutions. So, uh, for now, we'll end and we'll take up um, what kinds of societies emerge because of these constitutions, the kind of crisis uh, uh, and concern about what was going on in the states, all of which provided some of the impetus for the creation of, uh, of a central federal government. And that'll be the subject of our next class. So I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in hearing more about history? literature, and public affairs, check out BookNotes Plus. 
Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long-running BookNotes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. BookNotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians, along with some old favorites from the archives. The platform may be different, but the goal is the same. Give listeners the opportunity to learn something new. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.